According to Gregory of Tours, at King Clovis's baptism, Bishop Remigius addressed him this way. Humbly lower your head, worship what you have burnt, burn what you have worshipped. Mites depone colla, segamber, adora quoda sendesti, ensende quoda adoresti. This seems a useful entry point into how ethnicity was performed, perceived, written about in 6th century Gaul, and how it developed. But first, a little contextualization is necessary. The fall of Rome is traditionally dated to the 4th of September 476, although debate still exists over whether it can be considered a collapse, or rather an event in a longer context of transformation, continuity or decline. Gaul was a group of dioceses within the late Roman territorial system, roughly covering modern France. By the time its successor, the Kingdom of the Franks, had been formed, it covered the same territory with the addition of what is now roughly West Germany and the Benelux. The Regnum Francorum in Gaul was initially expanded and ruled over by a Frankish warrior king called Clovis, and was then divided into four shares for his children, an idea of subdivision which is important. The kingdom of the Franks is a whole, composed of several kingdoms within it. He's the first generation of king to be aware of, uh, as well as his grandsons Thudebert, Sigibert, Guntram and Kilpric. I'll refer back to these figures and try and situate them generationally, so there's no need to remember them. This dynasty is what is referred to as the Merovingian dynasty, which ruled Gaul from 481 to 751. The first hint of our ethnic considerations may have emerged with that contextualization. These Frankish kings ruled over a Roman polity. Indeed, for the 6th century, the principal dynamic between these two people, or gentes, was painting very broad strokes that Franks formed the military aristocracy and soldiery, and that Romans provided administration, a substantial amount of bishops as well, and more or less everything else. They were not the only Gentes within the kingdom. There were also Burgundians, Goths, Syrians, Jews, and many other groups within an ethnic landscape and mosaic, which is our focus today. It would be useful at this point to give some definitions of the categories with which historians of identity and ethnicity work with. I should also point out that there is a difference between how people grouped themselves back then and how historians study it today. I'll try and specify whether the view is from a contemporary or a modern historian when I bring up an example, although these aren't mutually exclusive. For instance, we'll see one author from the time claiming a Roman gen still existed whereas historians overall prefer another author's explanation of a more fractured civic identity. I used the term gens, a good segue into defining some terms. Gens simply means people, and corresponds to the idea of ethnicity at the time as a group of people recognising themselves and each other as having common ancestry and culture. This identity is Gentile identity which is to say related to the Gents rather than non-Jewish, as the term would be used today. Our idea of ethnicity has evolved to get rid of the biological element, which was not even necessary at the time, as people could adopt part of an ethnic identity in a cultural manner 
and present, or rather perform, their ethnicity situationally, as identity is constantly redefined and its many layers reshuffled, and is negotiated partly through performance to others in society. The last specificity is that I will use ethnic identity and ethnicity synonymously, though the historian Helmut Reimitz suggests ethnicity to be a worldview, accepting that people are grouped into ethnicities and have an ethnic identity. Uh, but I will use ethnic identity to cover my earlier definition. A quick overview of our sources for the 6th century are Gregory of Tours' Ten Books of Histories, Venantius Fortunatus' Collection of Poems, and, to an extent, the 7th century author Fredegar, insofar as he added to Gregory's narrative, which covers mainly Frankish history from the time of Clovis, but uh, as with all medieval histories, it starts with the biblical creation, uh, whereas Fredegar actually continues that narrative uh, from where Gregory left off, but he conceives of ethnicity differently. And finally, we will use non-manuscript evidence, as provided by epigraphy, stone inscriptions, archaeology, and art history. The texts tend to dominate matters of ethnicity, thanks to the complex vocabulary and discussions involved in them, especially for our general discussion. But objects associated to certain ethnicities, mentions of them in funerary inscriptions, or depictions of them are just as interesting. We will try and visualise the ethnic mosaic present in Gaul at the time, who lived within the regnum, how they self-identified, were viewed by others, how exactly they fit into the landscape and interacted with other ethnicities. Our approach will be by Gents, and then more or less chronologically within each Gents. I hope to illustrate some aspects of the nature of early medieval ethnicity and some of the developments specific to Gaul. To talk of Franks, we must first talk of Frankishness. I would define this as a particular set of Frankish identity layers, ordered in a particular way. This means that there are many Frankishnesses, or models of Frankishness, depending on the objectives of the person performing their identity as Frankish, or at least partly Frankish. This idea of portraying identity is part of dramaturgical theory, which says that we are constantly performing our identity and our life is performed as on a stage, as in a play, which was a sociological approach to identity popularised in the 1950s. As I mentioned before, identity was ever-changing, reshuffling its layers situationally, which is an idea reused by Walter Paul with his situational ethnicity, which basically is adapting your ethnicity to the situation. You might say you're Roman at one point and Frankish to justify something else in hopes of recognition of some kind, of belonging to X group. The Franks had come from various confederations of Germanic, with scare quotes, tribes that had finally settled more or less around the Rhine under the leadership of a king. First settled as Foiderati, bound by a tit-for-tat agreement whereby they defended Rome without being citizens of it, they went on to take over Gaul in 486 under their king Clovis who had been the son of the previous administrator of um, Belgica Secunda, and so capitalise on their previously Roman delegated authority, leading to a shift in social organisation. 
Clovis quickly eliminated potential rivals and built for himself a kingdom, going from Spain to Belgium and well into Germany. At first, the Franks in Gaul constituted a warrior aristocracy and were ethnically contrasted with Romans, as can be seen, for instance, in the Pactus Legis Salicae, or Lex Salica, of unknown dating, but probably composed in its first written form around 500 AD under Clovis. The self-representation of Franks is quite hard to see in this period, as they do not offer much writing except the correspondence of Clovis and some of his relatives. Coins, seals and rings do reveal composite identities, and kings who wish to appeal to every ethnicity present in the kingdom, which at that particular point in time was an important factor in maintaining legitimacy and stability. They continued to be dominant within the ethnic mosaic despite being a minority, uh, but a minority composing the societal elite. So here's a quote from the Lex Salica. If a Frank ties up a Roman without cause, he shall be liable to pay 600 denarii, which makes 15 solidi. Si vero Francus Romanum sine causa legaveret, sescienti denarios qui fatsunt solidos quindecem colpabiles judicietor. It is difficult to know what to make of Francus here. It seems to be an ethnic category, but there are also later distinctions between Saliki which would seem to make it a more politico-legal, artificial and more imaginary category later on, uh, imaginary in the Lacanian sense, uh, meaning an ideal to move towards, the ideal Salic person, or Frank. Venantius Fortunatus, the court poet we mentioned, originally from Italy, known for his panegyrics to various figures of authority at the Merovingian courts, used the old division between Romans and barbarians, which we shall return to later. His vision of the Franks is seemingly negative, associating them with bad traits that they cannot overcome, traits due to their birth. Interestingly, both Fortunatus and Bishop Remigius, the bishop who baptised Clovis, refer to the Franks as Sicambri, who were an old Germanic tribe, uh, and who functioned as a literary euphemism, much like equating Romans with Trojans. So here is a quote from Fortunatus' poetry. Gaining your venerable traits from your Roman stock, you wage war with force of arms, you govern the sway of law in tranquillity. Antiquos animos Romane esterpes adeptos, bella moves armis, jura quiete reges. Gregory of Tours, the 6th century bishop and historian who wrote the Ten Books of Histories, does not speak of Franks either, only of barbarians. Now this is likely since Frankish identity and culture threatened his own ambition, which was to present an ideal world where bishops have supreme power and work alongside pious kings, in short a society where the church had control over most aspects of daily life and even government, especially urban government. His portrayal is not too negative, that said, though the real upper crust of society for him are bishops who are also senatores. Frankishness is in many ways both an ethnicity and the feeling of belonging, and the acceptance of others as belonging to a socio-cultural group. For that reason we start to see cliques 
such as Gregory of Tours' great-uncle, Duke Gundulf, who was among those who may have, or pretty clearly did, identify situationally as Frankish, uh, either ethnically or culturally, divorced from his actual ancestry, often seemingly for political advancement. This is really quite clear with Gundulf, since his father is Florentius, a senator, what we would identify as a Roman, and his brother Nicetius is a bishop. Note the two Latin names, unlike his. Others, like the officer Gogo, took on airs of Romanus, inspired by the imperial bodyguard, and wrote poetic letters and poems to other members of that Latin-speaking, Latin-named clique, and forming a social and intellectual group of Romanized Franks, although Gogo himself has a Frankish name. How were the Franks perceived by outsiders? The most interesting point of view here is probably that of the Byzantine Empire, which still fought of the West as its commonwealth. It thought of Franks at first as barbarian usurpers, but slowly allowed them more agency as legitimate successors to Rome. This is also a shift in general context. Procopius, who wrote the earlier negative account, wrote at a moment where the Franks were a potential enemy. Agathias, decades later, stressed their similarities as members of Christendom and post-Roman successors, who receive important relics and political legitimacy from the Byzantine Empire. Eventually one can even find, like in the 6th century document, the Table of Nations, or also in the Excerpta Latina Barbari, a King Francus, listed in a Trojan genealogy. The Franks themselves offer two creation myths, ethnogenesis. Gregory reports a mythical one linked to a sea monster, though this is only limited to the royal family, the Merovingians. The Chronicle of Fredegar and other works suggest a, an overall Trojan origin. Uh, but that said, neither idea seems to have been exploited particularly strongly, appearing in passing as propaganda, and how widely they were accepted rather than being rhetorical figures and euphemisms is unclear. A shift does occur at the turn of the century. Frankishness, previously ethnocultural, takes on a new political and legal definition that is seen in the 7th century chronicle of Fredegar, and which corresponds to political assimilation as a situational, overdefined identity can bring everyone in regardless of their quote-unquote actual ethnicity. So to contemporaries, their parental or civic identity, or their gens. And yeah, this was divorced from ethnicity in an, in an ancestral sense, and was simply integration into a new social group, whatever you identified as before, a situational legal ethnicity, as had already started to happen sporadically in the 6th century with those cliques for political advancement. This was generalised in the 7th. Accordingly, the Regnum Francorum became tied more to being politically a Frank, and the kings become Rex Francorum in title after the 570s, connected to a single ethnicity, which they're insisting on, and not several. This position of privilege de facto weakened other ethnicities, uh, an already fading Roman identity considerably, and uh, negative consequences across the board. I would define Romanness in the same way as I laid out for Frankishness, 
a particular set of Roman identity layers ordered in a particular way. The Romans need little introduction. Originally restricted to citizens of the city of Rome, they built a large empire during antiquity, which progressively stopped working from the 3rd century onwards, marked by discontinuities and transformations. Discussions of when or whether it ended, and who was a successor to Rome, are the source of perpetual debates and various perspectives, then and now. Now, grossly generalised into theories of collapse, transformation and continuity. The nature of studying shifts in identity means that it is probably best to see it as having largely stopped working in 476, but without anyone necessarily thinking of it as completely dead until the 550s and 560s, and not consciously changing identity on the 4th of September 476. For the sake of openness and situating what I'm talking about, I believe that after what we see in 476, there's a slow transformation with many continuities in people's minds though an ultimate collapse, as more or less theorised by Guy Halsall after Justinian's failed reconquest in the mid-6th century, when people fought against being reintegrated into the empire, which is sort of an admission that it is no longer alive. Romans after 476 in Gaul eventually all fell under the rule of Clovis. From then on, their identity experienced many such shifts. For the initial situation, first of all, what Peter Brown calls central Romanness, a centralised, overdefined identity, overdefined as in allowing anyone to assimilate as being Roman in some way, uh, that could no longer exist without the imperial machine turning, whatever the continuity of its networks and institutions. So a progressive loss of meaning did happen at the centralised level, and whereas people realised they were linked by Christendom, they could no longer be linked by a common Romanus. So what prevailed? Well, local Romanus, such as belonging to a city, so a kiwitas, which is a civic identity, to belonging to a village at a very local level, which is suggested by Walter Paul and, and Simon Losby, the pagus, the, the smallest unit, so a rural identity, we might say, and also being related to someone, which is parental identity. These were on the same level as a Gentile identity, an ethnicity, which Romanus could no longer claim to be. A Frank and a Pictavus, an inhabitant of Poitiers, were on the same identitarian level, unlike what is suggested in earlier work by historians who tended to oppose ethnic and non-ethnic identity. This goes both ways, so Franks and Goths, Pictavi and Arwerni, are all equidistant one to another. As I've mentioned before, society still largely conformed to the Salic laws idea of a dichotomy. Romans are in those laws in a position of slight inferiority, but they're still seemingly parallel parts of society. And we also know that some towns preserved Roman laws, and Yitzhak Hen has shown that Frankish influence was less and less present the further south you went which was important in this period in a way that it would not be later in the century. For instance, the southern King Guntram, even in the Mediterranean parts of his kingdom, did not exploit Romanness, also showing that the correlation remained local. Some of it is also rather decorative, though still part of identity, like the longer survival of a two-name system. Gregory of Tours precisely is Georgios Florentius. As for the laws, they are in any case 
likely normative and not necessarily representative of how things were applied, but rather how they ought to be. In terms of culture, traces of the Roman world could still be seen and would have been part of the memorial landscape at first. A Roman aristocracy, Roman administration, and certain official positions had survived, or were revived, along with efforts of deliberate Romanization from Frankish kings like Clovis and Thudebert. Thus, despite a Frankish military and Roman administrative ecclesiastical aristocracy, the dichotomy was not as clear as the Salic law would like. There were different levels to different layers of identity. Despite this, the situation is fairly stable up to the 550s, with a Roman population, formerly ethnic, progressively falling back onto their civic identities. Discussions still surrounded legal distinctions and traditional underpinnings of Roman identity, like culture and education. Important for the slow death of Romanus is the idea that the Roman Empire had stopped working, but not that it was dead, and there was still, in this early period, up to about 550, a possibility to understand unification and post-Roman politics as a continuation of the Roman Empire, whether through the idea of transmission, translatio, as a commonwealth, or through renewal, renovatio. There was still that potential. We then move on to a slow death until Romanus seemingly disappears in 600, at least in any meaningful form. What put an end to this potential is Justinian's war. This had been followed by a propaganda campaign meant to portray post-Roman successors as barbarian usurpers, as we've mentioned. On the flip side, this meant that the Byzantines were claiming sole legitimacy over Romanus. Romanus was now through an eastern translatio, transfer of imperial legitimacy. But uh, Eastern influence turned from military intervention to soft power quite quickly, trying to influence Frankish diplomacy, leading to Agathias' more positive outlook for his audience. This could have served to rehabilitate Romans in Gaul, but it had, in fact, made them realise their identity was fading and that the Western Empire was gone for good. This is something observable from the 550s onwards, coinciding with widespread use of civic and parental identity. So this slow death can also be seen in Gregory and Venantius' categorizations of peoples, in how they identify individuals and groups within their work. Gregory, much for the same reasons as why he doesn't talk of Franks, doesn't talk of Romans. They go against his proposed worldview, in terms of looking towards the past when he's proposing something for the future. He does, however, talk of senatores, seemingly as a euphemism for Romans. He's certainly proud of his associations with them in his family, though, as I've said, he also had a Frankish-named great-uncle, who could boast of the same relations, yet identified himself as part of a Frankish socio-political group, the Duques. Venantius, however, uses these groups normatively, because others have used them before him, and that's a literary debt of his. But what he's actually proposing in his poems is a way to ally Frankish and Roman identity in the Frankish kings and magnates and um, noble women he praises, offering them a cultural reinterpretation of Roman identity, which had become so diffuse. It had been previously overdefined, structural in a political sense, taxonomic, meaning there was an ethnic element, then simplified to be ethnic, and then 
as we have discussed, local. And by his time, there was no longer an ethnic division, even though he's bound to that trope. But yeah, he presents the idea that Franks can culturally have the same virtues as Romans. He's reworked Roman ethnicity into a cultural strategy for identification, a set of traits you can have whatever your ethnicity. While magnates and kings could now do this, they would not do so for long, and that strategy was eventually abandoned, both due to happenstance and the international and internal climate going against Romanness as not being as socially or politically efficacious as Frankishness. If by 600 Romanus had stopped meaning much for most people, it was that internally they'd been simplified first to a single group by Kilprick's addenda to the Lex Salica, and furthermore, later on, simplified even more into a group of semi-free commoners, among other groups, which is in the later Lex Ribuaria. In the Chronicle of Fredegar, their name as a group is essentially used as a literary flourish for people who probably wouldn't have identified as Romans, uh, much like when people call the Franks Sigambri. How one had best socially and politically present oneself had moved away from Romanophile Latin-named cliques towards Germanic ones, perhaps explaining the survival of Frankish into the 9th century, according to Urban T. Holmes, Jr., although that's something that Yitzhakhen has argued against, claiming it had ceased to have much meaning in the 7th century. I offer both suggestions. Indeed, the relative lack of any proper information makes both theories equally likely. This was, in any case, the trend of the senatorial Gundulf in Gregory's family, rather than the Romanophile circle of friends of Gogo. This shift was divorced from ethnicity by birth, obviously, as before, and more of a cultural shift or situational ethnicity. For instance, in Gingundrum's Burgundy, officials known as Patrici were increasingly pulled from such groups. The same goes for bishops throughout the overall kingdom. Beyond Franks and Romans, there were other groups that formed a part of Barbarius, the imaginary barbarian world. We have Visigoths from Iberia, who were present in Gaul, though seemingly sporadically, outside of the border regions. There's Brunhilde, a Visigothic queen and the wife of King Sigibert, whose praises Vinantris Fortunatus sings, uh, comparing her to Venus in his poetry. Kilprick married and then likely assassinated her sister, Galswintha, another goth. They brought with them their households, who were present at their weddings and seemed to have acted as escorts to and from Spain, and Gregor of Tours mentions goths that he's met, especially as ambassadors while at court. They were a minor but influential group in Gaul, at least in Gregory's narrative. Burgundians were an ethnic group within the kingdom of the Burgundians, which was taken over later than the other parts of the Regnum. It's unclear what happened to them, but they were probably eventually assimilated as Franks, though their local identity likely persisted unchanged. Saxons were present in pockets around the north of Gaul, in fact the north of Europe generally, especially the Loire and Seine. We learn from Gregory that some of the inhabitants of Bayeux were Saxons, accumulating both identities as civic Bayeusin and ethnic or Gentile Saxony. A figure Gregory knew personally, Kildrick the Saxon, was probably a leader of one of these settlements. Also along the Loire, 
Toponymy indicates that some settlements may have been Alan or Sarmatian, such as modern Sarmez, although whether such identities survived into the 6th century is unclear. On a local level, it's difficult to argue against. Still more groups must have been invisible in the historical record, like the Sarmatians. The Alamanni, Thuringians, Frisians must have bled into Gaul on the border regions, or travelled thorough afoot, and commoners are too often not who history is written about. Adding to this problem is the natural difficulty in seeing identity in archaeology, something illustrated by the problem of identifying jutes in the Anglo-Saxon graves of England. Scare quotes on the Anglo-Saxon. Whenever one turns to Jewish populations in the medieval West, one often meets a hostile ideology, due to them being deicides in the biblical tradition, but a much more nuanced and peaceful situation in real life, at least for the early part of the early Middle Ages. This holds true for the ideological arguments of our authors, uh, in fact, Gregory, whose views can be contrasted with the material evidence. Most of our written sources on Jewish communities of the period consist of councils, laws, hagiographies, and historiographies, written by and for Christians. For self-representation, the corpus is thus rather limited. A handful of inscriptions do, however, survive. Two are seals with a menorah and a name on them. The names are Januarius and Asta. Two are monumental inscriptions, on the other hand and only one is potentially from our period, the other is later. It reads as follows. In the holy name of God, the foreigner who comes here, may God be with him, may envious eyes burst. From the gifts of God, Jonah made this. Peace. En Dei nomine, Santo Belejar, Kik Bened, Deus esto conesso, Aolio en Beiosi Crevent, De Dei Donorona, Fetied, Shalom. Deus is of course here used for Yahweh. This underlines the religious proximity Jews and Christians still enjoyed, sharing a language and vocabulary. It is easy to see how identities were hybrid, complex constructions. The use of Latin is also a relatively reliable sign of Romanization. That is, that some sort of Roman identity layer, here that Jonah is literate, was present or if had this made, is implied rather than made this, that he had access to literacy. One can also mention the importance of Jewish merchants in the form of international commerce, who likely brought many wares in and out of Gaul, their presence being ephemeral for that particular group, but part of the ethnic landscape. What of their representation by others? Jews are vilified in Gregory of Tours, but only religiously, and there is this idea that they can become Christians without compromising their identity. The only issue is theological, by not accepting the New Testament and Christ as the Messiah. Almost all of the Jews in Gregory of Tours are moneylenders, one of them a friend of the king named Priscus. This may well have been a common function, possibly since forbidden by Christianity, but it can hardly have been the only one. The community would need religious officials, for one, and it is not necessary to assume, for instance, that Jonah is a moneylender. People like Priscus's own stepdaughter, possibly his son, were not moneylenders either. Jews had been in the ethnic mosaic for a long time, and would stay there for a long time. 
Despite what the sources say, there was probably a great deal they could do, and could engage in friendly interactions with others, despite theological disagreements. This hostility was likely anti-Judaism rather than anti-Semitism, linking an essentialist concept of ethnicity with the Jewish religion. Although exactly which gentes or identity layers Jews could have and did express, and indeed what the Jewish gents or populus itself was, is still unclear. Whether Judai were seen as part of ethnicity, or simply people practicing the Abrahamic faith, is unclear. Though Gregory's views of apostasy suggest the latter, as his qualms with Jews ended when they converted. Still, some sort of ethnic division is suggested, especially when Gregory puts them beside other Gentes. In any case, it is likely that beyond being religiously Jewish and attracting some scorn for that, they not only lived in peace as neighbours side by side with other groups, but also had a broad range of possible ways of identifying, such as civic identities. In Gregory of Tours' narrative, the stepdaughter of Priscus is not only Jewish, but also a Massiliana, an inhabitant of Marseille. Things did, however, take a turn for the worse in 614. Jews were barred from holding royal offices. This shows us a number of things, including that they had done so without problem up to that point. It is likely the ban has a twofold explanation, both as a policy simply meant to spurn the politics of Brunhilde and her son, grandsons and great-grandson, who were all kings with her as regent or advisor. This is since the law was instituted by her enemy, Clotha II, also her late husband's nephew where she had had no problem in having Jewish officials at her family's court, and even welcoming those fleeing the persecution of Visigothic king Sisabut in 612, Clotha perhaps wanted to be a contrarian. More likely, she had gone against a general trend of more and more severe anti-Judaism, perhaps helped by Columbanism and the way monasticism was evolving, which was a dark foreshadowing of what would become anti-Semitism. While still at this point religious rather than ethnic persecution, this was a severe blow to the possible roles Jewish people could have in society, which set a trend that kings like Dagobert continued. Of course, the existence of apostates raises the question of who converted willingly. Some did, at least according to Gregory, but others were reluctant and were met with violence. Kilprick saw to the forced baptisms of Jews in his reign, so the situation could be traumatic for Jews in Gaul well before 614. Finally, two other groups are worth mentioning. First of all, elusive references are made to Suriani, which here should be understood as anyone from the Middle East, not necessarily Syria. Gregory of Tours mentions a Syrian relic seller in Bordeaux, and Syrians greet Guntram during his adventus in Orléans in their own language. Syriac or Greek. Like Jews before 614, they could clearly perform public offices, and in fact more so, as the ones we know of were Christians, allowing religious offices. Eusebius, who was a merchant and a Syrian by Gens, was, however, elected in Ragnamod's place, tells us Gregory. A sizable community clearly existed, as Eusebius also had a household full of Syrians. Further ones are mentioned in the life of Genevieve and of Columbanus. Despite these figures being merchants of some kind, we should, just like the Jews, not assume all Syrians were, and Gregory himself mentions in another one of his works that he has a Syrian assistant who helps him out. 
their position in the ethnic mosaic is still somewhat of a question mark, especially with the vagueness of their actual ethnicity. But it is a testament to the cosmopolitan and multicultural world the Merovingians lived in. Another group is the Irish, providing proof of the type of interconnected Christianity that Sihong Lin argues for. That is, cross-cultural interactions that transcend borders thanks to Christianity. Indeed, the very end of the 6th century bears witness to the arrival of the Irish monk Columbanus, who set up a number of ecclesiastical institutions following an insular model, including Luxay Abbey, or what would become Luxay Abbey. Finally, of course, we didn't cover people outside of the kingdom, or extremely minoritarian groups, where only a few individuals of such an ethnicity are known. But they were actors on the diplomatic, cultural, and military seat, sometimes as inhabitants of the kingdom, and they probably did influence how identities evolved and perceived themselves. So we've mentioned the Visigoths, but there would also be the Ostrogoths, the Swabi, the Lombards, and the Bretons. Finally, we learn of people even further beyond the border, like the Huns, almost certainly Avars, harassing the Regnum. I hope to have illustrated two points about early medieval ethnicity, in general and specifically the Gaulish ethnic mosaic, as it existed in the 6th century. The first is that ethnicity was dynamic, situational, and ever-shifting, constantly redefined and re-performed. The second is that changes to ethnicity are a good way to see changes to society, for instance, Frankish political assimilation, progressive hostility to Jews, the existence of a Syrian population, and how people thought of their identity and presented it. I have mainly made points at the level of large groups, gentes, some smaller ones like kiwitates, but ultimately it's also possible to look at how specific groups presented their identity like dukes or bishops, as cliques or as social groups or social stratos. Indeed, as I've shown, different layers of identity interlocked to form hybrid personal identities. Gundulf was of senatorial birth, but presented as a Frank, to use the language of scholars like Irving Goffman and Judith Butler. He presented as a Frank. One could and should continue beyond ethnicity. He was a man a member of the Christian Gents, or Christian Populus, uh, relatively old when we hear of him, the firstborn son of his family, and perhaps Genevan, and all these elements are factors of his identity. The period overall is characterised by shifts corresponding to changes in how society functioned, the solidification of Frankish ethnicity as Franks concretized their place in society to the disadvantage of other groups, like Romans or Jews, tied to a need for post-Roman kingdoms to identify with a single ethnicity, not unlike Susan Reynolds' idea of the nation. Due to assimilation, the Franks largely ate up Romans and other ethnic groups, everyone become, well, almost everyone becoming Frankish, as it was more politically useful, and Frankishness had been expanded into a politico-legal ethnicity, rather than being more exclusive, just as Romans had been dumped down into a generalising group, which was less and less useful to be a part of. For remaining groups, they persecuted the Jews for religious reasons. Still in the 6th century, the Merovingian world was a very rich and multicultural one, in the image of its kings, who Venantius could praise as being multicultural, which is far from the Clovis of 19th century French educators like Ernest Lévis 
anachronistically thought to be the first king of France, the progenitor of la race française. Not only does Frankish identity not work that way, there were a larger amount of ethnicities within the ethnic mosaic. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 1 was produced by Jonathan Correa Reyes, Rita Mera, and Logan Quigley. For more information on the Multicultural Middle Ages, follow the links in our episode description. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button to keep up with new episodes.